Warning. The following podcast discusses gun violence, violent crime, police brutality and capital punishment. It may not be suitable for all listeners. It's the 11th of November 1880, in a small cell opposite the gallows at the Melbourne jail. It's a warmish day and the gardens look lovely. Something which has been noticed by the man now sitting in the condemned cell, in full view of the rope upon which his life will shortly end. He's a tall man, with a large bushy beard and a solid build. He limps slightly as he walks, the effect of a recent injury, and calmly rises when the prison warden enters his cell, accompanied by the chaplain. Ah well, he says, I suppose it's come to this. He walks calmly out onto the gallows and gives no trouble as the noose is fixed around his neck. As the hood is pulled over his face, he is said to have muttered, such is life. Seconds later, the trapdoor beneath his feet opened and he dropped into eternity. His death was instantaneous and he was quietly buried in the prison cemetery with minimal ceremony. It would not be until 2013 that the man's remains were returned to his family and buried on consecrated ground, along with those of his mother and many of his siblings. And who was he? His name was Edward Kelly, although all who knew him called him Ned. In his life, he was called many other things as well. Murderer, bushranger, larrikin, thug, a beloved brother and a son, a hero, a bank robber, a great friend, and so much more. In death, he's become one of the most enduring and most controversial Australian historical figures. But was he really everything people claimed him to be? I'm Juliana, and you're listening to The Skeptical Historian. Hello, my fellow skeptics. Thank you once again, as always, for joining me today. I would like to begin, as I always do, by acknowledging the Wurundjeri, Woidurong and Boonurong people on whose lands I'm podcasting today. I recognise their timeless history making and their deep connection to the lands, waters and stories of this nation and would like to pay my respects to their elders. I'd also like to give a shout out to Studio 4 at the State Library of Victoria, where this episode is being recorded. For more information or to book the studio yourself, please head to www.slv.vic.gov.au. Few figures in colonial Australian history have had more media produced about them than Edward Ned Kelly. In the 143 years or so since he was executed for the murder of a police officer, he has become an Australian cultural icon, albeit, as I mentioned in the introduction, an extremely controversial one. And his supposed last words, such as life, have become legendary in their own right. He and his gang have been the subjects of numerous books, journals, movies, musicals, plays, podcasts, this one included, of course, and even visual art. In fact, one of the most famous depictions of Ned is artist Sidney Nolan's Ned Kelly series, in which the bushranger is shown constantly as a silhouette, wearing his famous or 
perhaps more infamous armor. This armor is an integral part of the Kelly story and has become the Ned Kelly symbol since he and his gang wore it during their last stand at Glen Rowan in northeastern Victoria in 1880. Ned's suit is on display at the State Library of Victoria and its recent move to a new home at the time of recording is what inspired me to do this episode, but more on that later. And the other three suits, worn by gang members Joe Byrne, Dan Kelly and Steve Hart, are at various other Victorian cultural institutions. But who was this man? Some say he's nothing but a cop killer. But if that's true, why are we still talking about him almost 150 years later? Other people say he was an Australian Robin Hood, robbing from the rich to give to the poor, but if that's true... Who was he robbing? Supporters of Ned Kelly, both in his own time and today, present the Kelly gang as victims of over-policing, anti-Catholic prejudice, police brutality and anti-Irish racism. This is all true. The detractors say that Ned was a murderer, ran an organised crime ring, stole livestock all across the district, was prone to violence and attempted what we would today recognise as an act of terrorism. This is also true. I don't pretend to have all the answers on this one, but I do want to understand how one man came to be the focus of so much historical myth-making. If you've been listening to my podcast long enough, you'll know there's nothing I hate more than when mythology gets in the way of good history, because the history is always better. Although, in the case of the Kellys, it could be argued that we've fallen back on mythology because the history really is so much worse. But before we get too deep into that, it's worth understanding a little about the Kelly family. They were a large family, as most families were back then, who settled in the northeast of Victoria in the 1850s. His father, John Kelly, known as Red, had been transported for stealing a pig while his mother, Ellen, was the daughter of free settlers who had struggled to make a life for themselves in the poverty-stricken northeast. Both John and Ellen were Irish, and Ned, while born in Australia, was very proud of his Irish heritage. Ned's father died when he was quite young, which left him the man of the house. Or, at least, this is how he saw it. He was the second eldest of his surviving seven siblings, and the oldest boy, But what his mother and the rest of the family thought of his quote-unquote promotion, as we might call it, is not recorded. He was in some ways fiercely protective of his mother and quite well known for that, but he wasn't quite as devoted as later mythology would portray him. He certainly cared about her very much, but his own interests came first. Of the three Kelly brothers, actually, it was Jim Kelly, who more on him a bit later, who dedicated his life to looking after his mother, although he had his own troubles with the law to contend with before that. But back to Ned. After his father's death, his mother had moved further northeast to the town of Greta to be closer to her extended family, the Quinns and the Lloyds. And it was here that Ned Kelly began to make a name for himself as, well, a rather dangerous young man, actually. He and his brothers, as well as their extended family, were frequently in and out of prison. 
some of these crimes were petty, such as being drunk and disorderly or disturbing the peace, which, honestly, almost everyone in the district was guilty of that at some point. But there were more serious offences too. One of Ned's uncles was jailed for life for murder, and another tried to burn the whole family alive by setting fire to their house on the property. Several other uncles committed serious assaults which left their victims with lifelong injuries and they frequently stole livestock. For those of us who, like me, don't live on the land, livestock theft may not seem like a big deal, especially compared to assault, murder and trying to burn your nieces and nephews alive. But it's a serious problem for farmers even today. And it was even more of a problem in the 1870s when this was all occurring. Essentially, these places like Greta, where the Kellys lived, were frontier towns and they relied on livestock. There were lots of small farms. And livestock has been valuable in Australia since the invasion. Any wealth in the area came from sheep and cattle runs. And if those sheep and or cattle were stolen, not only would the farmer not make any money at the market, but it could completely ruin them. The Kelly Quinn Lloyd family were quite notorious for stock theft and they had form too. And it wasn't just nicking one or two sheep here and there. They ran a large-scale organised crime ring that centred around stock theft. Now, I'll get to that in more detail later in the podcast, but it's something to keep in the back of your mind as we go on. I think this is a good spot to take a break. So make sure your horses are securely tethered And I'll be back in a moment. Welcome back. Hopefully everyone's horses are still right where you left them and you're ready to pick up the story of young Ned Kelly. How much involvement Ned himself had in these early stock thefts is unclear. But he almost certainly knew about it and, if nothing else, he and his brothers probably assisted in removing brands from the stolen sheep, cattle and horses or altering those that were harder to remove. Ned had a reputation for being dangerous and, as devastating as stock theft is, you don't get a reputation like that for stealing sheep. Kelly's supporters say this reputation was undeserved and that he was targeted by the police because of his family's criminal activity. However, Kelly was known to have a flashpan temper and there were suspicions that he had been involved in several instances of assault around the district. But that wasn't all. In 1869, aged 14, Ned Kelly had taken up with Harry Power, a very dangerous man indeed. Power was a bushranger. For my international audience, this is the Australian term for a highwayman or someone who commits armed robberies and then uses the bush as their base to hide from authorities. And Power had a £500 reward on his head. He'd escaped from prison and was wanted for a series of violent armed robberies, but was proving extremely hard to catch. Power relied on a large network of sympathisers to help hide him from police, so that is supporters, and even on his own, he was an absolutely superb bushman and horseman. The Kelly Lloyd Quinn families often allowed Power to hide out on the property and helped him evade police although it was eventually one of the Quinns who turned Power in and claimed the reward. Ned Kelly probably met Power at one time or another when he was hiding out on the Kelly property, 
although why he teamed up with him is unclear. Some historians believe that Power may have offered to pay Ned to help look after his horses. Indeed, the first witnesses who saw Ned helping Power say that he was just holding the horses. And given the grinding poverty the family lived in, such an offer would have been tempting. Some have suggested even that Power offered the money to Ned Kelly's mother, Ellen, if she would consent to allowing her son to come bushranging with him. Others have said that this is unlikely, given Power had no guaranteed steady income, and really that's an occupational hazard of being an armed robber, I would think. And had he promised money and then failed to pay, he would have had to deal with the wrath of the Kelly Lloyd Quinn family. And as we've already seen, they were not people to be trifled with. Kelly may have joined up with Power in the hopes of having an adventure, as life on the poor block in Greta would have been incredibly dull for a 14-year-old. But he quickly returned home after being shot at during a botched armed robbery attempt very early on in his quote-unquote career as Power's assistant. This would suggest to me that perhaps he was in some ways seduced by the romantic idea of sticking it to the police his family hated and making money by robbing the gold escorts, but got cold feet when he discovered the risk. But why would a 14-year-old hate the police so much? I've mentioned the criminal connections in Ned's extended family, which would have certainly contributed to that dislike of the cops. The Age's long-term crime reporter, John Sylvester, who is an excellent columnist that I think everyone should read, by the way, has talked about the way criminal networks and families with links to crime tend to believe that police are constantly harassing them and they despise them for it. I want to make it clear here. When I'm discussing criminal families, I'm talking about it in the context of an organised criminal underworld. I'm not suggesting in any way, shape or form that certain groups of people are more inclined to crime or that everyone who happens to be related to a criminal is guilty by association or responsible for the actions of their relative. I'm also very well aware that police frequently engage in deeply unethical and sometimes illegal behaviour and have a long history of corruption and cover-up. They're also known for profiling, especially of marginalised groups, and these people are constantly overrepresented in our so-called justice systems. This was also true back in the 1870s, and probably even more so. But what is also true is that Ned's family were involved in, in organised crime level activity. Along with the stock thefts and assaults, there is some anecdotal evidence that they successfully frightened witnesses into refusing to testify against them. And there's even some speculation that they may have been involved in a profitable protection racket among local farmers who paid to stop their stock being stolen. The police harassment they felt they were experiencing often came in the form of the police knocking on their door because a local farmer had lost his horses, sheep or cattle and the police wanted to search the property. Given their well-deserved reputation, this isn't really an unreasonable request. However, the Kelly Lloyd Quinn family had other reasons to despise the police, which were rooted in real rather than perceived police misconduct, but also in old cultural prejudices and religious intolerance. 
The community that Ned Kelly was a part of had been drawn to the edges of Victoria due to the opening up of land for settlement. However, these laws had been very poorly thought out and they caused more hardship and heartache than they solved. The Land Acts, as they were called, allowed a settler to take up a selection of uncultivated land of varying acreage and buy half the land at the flat rate of one pound per acre and rent the other half from the government. To keep the land and eventually buy that second half, the selector had to make improvements, which included building a dwelling and farming. But the problems arose very quickly. The lands available for selection were offered without any consideration as to their viability, and they could be anything from a fertile grassy plain to a swamp. After paying the rent for half the land, and after also paying to buy their own half, many selectors did not have enough money to make the required improvements, so were at risk of losing the land that they'd just worked so hard to purchase. Many fell behind on their rent and then struggled to catch up when the government sent debt collectors. No consideration was given for if the land was viable or not, nor were the selectors' individual circumstances taken into account at all. If they couldn't pay and or couldn't make the required improvements, they would lose the land. Selector communities were generally incredibly poor for the most part, and even those who were doing better than most... Farming was not certain work. It only takes one storm, a drought, a flood, a fire, or an instance of stock theft, and there goes someone's livelihood. Poof! Kelly lived in one such community, and the link between poverty and crime is well documented. Then into this mix came the Victorian police of the late 19th century, many of who make today's cops look like angels in blue. While the Victoria Police had evolved slightly from its days as corrupt tax collectors on the goldfields, and the men, and at this time it was only men, were more likely to join because it offered a stable wage and respectability, rather than because it gave them the opportunity to beat senseless anyone they chose, there were still some men on the force who abused their power and position. As a whole, too, the police force was deeply conservative and saw their role being not to serve and protect the community but to uphold the social ideas and class hierarchies that governed much of the British Empire at this time. Most especially, policing was designed to keep the poor in their place. The policies put into action in the 19th century, especially in deeply impoverished communities, were based on early forms of what would later be called eugenics, which is a vile pseudoscience which gained prominence in the early 20th century. However, it had been in practice long before it was named, and these teachings claimed that certain groups of people were naturally inclined to criminality. It will surprise no one, even vaguely familiar with the late Victorian period, to learn that among these groups which were believed to be naturally criminally inclined were people of colour, non-English speakers, Catholics and the Irish. It is also not surprising that these people tended to live in conditions in which crime was more likely to occur because they couldn't access support and assistance due to prejudice and exclusion, 
which trapped many in cycles of generational poverty. It was also believed that the criminally inclined, quote-unquote, were less intelligent, couldn't be reasoned with, and had to be governed by force. So police were encouraged to be particularly brutal. Now, whether a person is committing a crime or not, or is intending to commit a crime or not, if they are subjected to police who treat them as stupid and inferior and assume that they need to be treated badly to learn anything, they will fight back. Despite the slightly better character of Victoria Police in 1870 compared to 1850, police violence was still endemic in selector communities and people were prone to resisting arrest, whether they had committed a crime or not, because they knew they were likely to be beaten if they were taken to a lockup. This then created a vicious cycle. Police reported back to Melbourne that people were violent and they needed more men, stricter laws and greater powers of arrest. This was granted and more police turned up with preconceived notions that they were in the midst of a naturally violent community and assumed they not only had to use force but were justified in doing so And the cycle began all over again when someone was arrested. Kelly's family experienced this treatment, certainly, but it wasn't uniquely dished out to them. It was experienced by all the selectors in the area, especially the Irish, and doubly so if they were Catholic. The other factor contributing to bad relations between police and the selector community was old religious prejudice. As already mentioned... Many selectors were Catholic, and Victoria was not exactly a fantastic place to be a Catholic in the 1870s. The Legislative Council, that is the Upper House of Parliament, had been trying for more than 10 years to pass laws favouring the Church of England and that would give special privileges to Protestant organisations. However, despite these laws having the backing of some of the wealthiest and most powerful residents in the colony, not to mention they were supported by the Australian arm of the Anglican Church, the council couldn't get them past the Legislative Assembly. They're the lower house, the people who got their mace stolen last episode. The council claimed this was because the Assembly was dominated by Catholics and they were too busy protecting their own. Clearly the council didn't recognise the rank hypocrisy of this argument. However, this was actually untrue. Both Houses of Parliament were dominated by Protestants, at least statistically, although it is certainly true to say that there were more Catholics in the Assembly than in the council. The Assembly objected to these bills and refused to pass them because it was pushing for an entirely secular system – with no state aid to churches, religious schools or charities affiliated with any religion. This was a really popular position at the time in the cities, but in the rural areas of the colony, old religious rivalries still held sway. The traditional story has it that these prejudices were plucked directly out of Ireland. It puts the Protestant ruling English against the downtrodden Catholic Irish, and says these ideas were imported to Australia, along with all the accompanying heartbreak and misery. However, the Australian version of this story is a little different. It's true to say that these issues had their roots in Ireland, and that they'd been brought to Australia by immigrants of both stripes. But 
rather than this being a case of English versus Irish, it was mostly Protestant Irish versus Catholic Irish. Both groups tended to be impoverished in Victoria and they actually often had more in common here than they did at home, but deeply entrenched religious prejudices put both groups against each other. Both selectors and police tended to be Irish at this time in Victoria, but in Australia the police tended to be Protestant at all levels, not just in the upper echelons as was common in Ireland. With this in mind... It's not unreasonable to say that police harassment was often based as much on religious prejudice as anything else. Of course, not every police officer was a violent thug, but it is true that policing culture at the time was more about maintaining the status quo than about keeping communities safe, and a royal commission in 1881 would make much the same finding. It is absolutely true to say that the Kelly family were persecuted and suffered police harassment. But no more than any other selector family in a similar position. They weren't singled out for especially bad treatment. And when they did attract extra police attention, it was usually because they were involved in criminal activity. However, to the Kellys, these constant visits just confirmed their old prejudices and built a deep hatred for the police. The situation was a powder keg just waiting to explode. It's no wonder that Kelly may have been seduced by the idea of sticking it to them, if indeed this is why he initially teamed up with Harry Power. I'm going to take another break here, give you a bit of time to digest all that, and I'll be back shortly with more of the Ned Kelly story. And we're back, back like, well, back like Ned Kelly and Harry Power, who reconciled and went back on the road together in 1870. They committed a string of armed robberies over the first few months of 1870 before disappearing back into the bush. Power insisted later in his life that he had never hurt anyone and had always been courteous to his victims. He was completely silent on the subject of Kelly, but really, that's besides the point. Being robbed at gunpoint is a traumatic experience, which would have affected the lives of Power and Kelly's victims for years afterwards. Power was nothing more than a straight-out violent man, and Kelly was heading in the same direction. Then something happened to break the pair up once and for all. Kelly was eventually identified as Power's young assistant and was arrested and remanded in Beechworth Jail. He was eventually released for lack of evidence and never charged, although he was held for a month while police tried to build a case. During this time, Harry Power was also caught, although separately from Kelly, while hiding out on a property belonging to Kelly's grandfather. Kelly knew that this was an area frequently used as a hideout by Power, with the full knowledge of his grandfather as well. And about the time Power was captured, Kelly walked free. Kelly always swore that he hadn't informed on Power, and it would later come out that it had been one of his other relatives who had told the police where Power was and claimed the £500 reward to boot. However, The issue of timing here is also very significant and has been commented on by other historians too. 
Kelly was facing some very serious charges, including three counts of armed robbery. And then power gets caught and he's suddenly going home? It's perfectly possible that Kelly was offered a deal. Confirm where power is, the police already knew because one of Ned's uncles had told them, but they probably wanted to check the information, and we'll drop the charges. Power certainly believed that Ned had informed on him and made sure everyone knew it too. He continued to believe it until his own death in 1891, and perhaps the old saying, he who laughs last, is appropriate here in a rather morbid way, because Power outlived his former protege by a whole 11 years and never killed anybody. He was an awful person, no doubt, who left his victims with years of trauma, but at least he wasn't a murderer. This is more than can be said for Ned, unfortunately, but we'll get to that later. However, it was Power, perhaps inadvertently, who first planted the seed of the Robin Hood myth that Kelly's supporters would latch on to in the years after his death. Power claimed he gave all the money he stole in his armed robberies to his sympathisers. But there are a few things worth pointing out here. Firstly, while Power did give some money to his network, he was hardly handing over gold bars to the needy, and many of them continued to live in extreme poverty, despite his claims that he was going out and doing all this for them. Secondly, there's also a question of whether he was giving to the poor or whether he was paying his sympathisers not to inform on him. £500, the reward being offered for power at the time, would set a man up for life. That's roughly 140000 Australian dollars today. And paying them off from his robberies may have been a good way to keep those sympathisers quiet if they started thinking about 500 pounds. Also, Power and Kelly didn't just rob the rich. They robbed anybody and everybody. They'd just as readily stick up a poor man for his last shilling as they would a squatter for his thoroughbred. Power also claimed throughout his life that he'd specialised in robbing gold escorts, but I have a problem with this. Power operated alone, or for a while, with a young Ned Kelly. And gold escorts were armoured carriages escorted by a party of between four and eight armed soldiers or police. Even while he was working with Ned, Power couldn't have robbed such parties. But Power liked the Robin Hood mythos. And when Ned Kelly started robbing banks in his short-lived bushranging career, this idea was attached to him too. It's probably the most pervasive Ned Kelly myth, right up there with the idea that the Kellys would never have been in trouble, or at the very least, would never have been in so much trouble, over the years had the police just left them alone. But Ned didn't graduate to robbing banks immediately after escaping charges of armed robbery. Instead, he walked free to almost immediately walk right back into prison a few months later. A family friend was accused of stealing a horse and asked Ned to deliver a note to the wife of the man who had made the accusation. The note itself was obscene and it was sent along with the severed testicles of a calf. 
The woman's husband confronted Ned over this and a physical altercation ensued where Ned knocked the man down and seriously injured him. He was arrested and sentenced to a total of six months hard labour, three months for assault and three months for sending the obscene note and the cow testicles. Ned claimed he hadn't known what was in the note or that it had contained the severed parts. I could potentially believe the first bit of that sentence, as there's no evidence Kelly actually had anything to do with writing the note or that he read it before he delivered it. But it's hard to believe that as he's strolling over there to deliver this package, that he didn't realise he was holding a pair of testicles. He'd grown up on farms. He'd castrated horses and cattle himself. He knew what those things looked like and he knew what they felt like. He was released five weeks early on account of good behaviour, which was a pattern that would repeat itself when he was in jail, and returned home to Greta. And it is here that the story takes a particularly interesting turn. A man named Wild Wright, or actually his name was Isaiah, but everyone called him Wild, arrived in Greta to visit his friend Alex Gunn, who was the husband of Ned's older sister, Annie. Wright was riding a very fine chestnut horse, which he allowed Ned to borrow, and Ned took the horse up to the nearby city of Wangaratta, where he stayed for four days. What Wright had not told Ned was that the horse was stolen and the police were already investigating. There is even some speculation that he encouraged Kelly to take the horse to deflect attention away from himself. On returning from Wangaratta, Ned was stopped by a policeman named Constable Hall, who knew the horse was stolen. Rather than try to immediately arrest Ned, he asked him to come to the police station on the pretext of signing some papers regarding his early release from prison. As Kelly dismounted, Hall made to grab him, but he was unable to get a good grip on the other man, and Kelly struggled. What happened next is disputed. Hall claimed he told Kelly he was under arrest and to stop resisting, while Kelly claims Hall continued to try and subdue him without telling him what was happening. It's actually perfectly possible that both scenarios are correct. In the tussle, Hall may have told Kelly he was under arrest, but Kelly may very well have not heard him. As we've also discussed, Very few people in Greta were prepared to go quietly when being arrested anyway, so even if Ned had heard him, he probably wouldn't have stopped struggling. What is not in dispute is that when Ned continued to fight back, Hall drew his gun and attempted to shoot Ned three times, and each time his gun misfired. And if Kelly had been resisting arrest before Hall tried to shoot him, He most certainly was resisting arrest now, and others had also arrived on the scene by this time. According to Kelly, he got the upper hand over Hall and began beating him, before straddling the police officer and digging his spurs into the other man's thighs. Ah! Such a thing would have been extraordinarily painful, although there's actually no evidence beyond Kelly's word that such a thing occurred. If Hall was treated for such an injury, it's not in the records, and it's also not recorded whether he needed to purchase a new pair of police trousers. I would imagine 
that spurs would damage the fabric and he would be required to get new ones. Beyond a doubt, what did happen is that sometime during the fight, Hall grabbed Kelly by the testicles. (laughs) Kelly is reported to have roared, I've never shot a man, but you'll be the first, or words to that effect. The claim is probably more myth than fact, but... I can imagine a man shouting all sorts of violent oaths in such a situation. Eventually, Kelly was subdued with the help of bystanders, and it really should have ended there. And Hall might have still been able to claim the moral, or if not the moral, at least the legal high ground. However, once Kelly had been immobilised and was being held by the bystanders, Hall drew his gun again and proceeded to viciously pistol-whip the young man to such an extent that he required medical attention when he was taken back to the lockup. Kelly was charged with horse theft, resisting arrest and assaulting an officer. During the trial, Hall claimed that Kelly had attacked him after he told him he was under arrest and denied blackballing or pistol-whipping him. Under cross-examination, he was forced to admit both and that he and Kelly had had a serious physical altercation. The charge of resisting arrest was dropped because the prosecution wasn't able to prove that Hall had legally arrested Kelly, but he was found guilty of assaulting an officer on account of the tussle. In my opinion, Hall should also have been charged with assault, as he certainly went above and beyond what could be considered reasonable force in arresting Kelly. But laws governing police behaviour were patchy and, where they existed at all, they were hardly ever enforced. Interestingly, the horse-stealing charges also had to be dropped because the defence was able to prove that Kelly had been in jail at the time the horse was stolen. By this point, Wild Wright had been caught and Ned's brother-in-law, Alex Gunn, who probably had nothing to do with anything, had also been implicated. Ned's charge was downgraded to feloniously receiving a horse and while he maintained he'd had no idea it was stolen, witnesses came forward to testify otherwise. He claimed these people were liars, but it's actually really hard to know who's telling the truth. Ned was sentenced to three years hard labour for assaulting an officer and feloniously receiving a horse while his brother-in-law received the same sentence for horse theft, three years hard labour. But Alex Gunn had not been involved at all. He'd been at home when Wild Wright had come to see him. He had, at the most, seen the horse in question. But his friendship with Wright meant that he was suspect in the eyes of the police, and the fact that he'd married into the Kelly family made him even more of a suspect. Wright the man who had actually stolen the horse, received 18 months hard labour on the charge of illegal use of a horse. I could understand the disparity in sentencing if Ned got a longer sentence because he was also found guilty of assaulting a police officer. But the fact that Gunn also received three years compared to Wright's 18 months speaks of something deeper and darker at play. If I might speculate for a moment, Ned was a Catholic. Gunn had married into a Catholic family. It's not clear what his religious affiliations were, although if he wasn't a Catholic on marrying Annie, he probably had to convert to be able to marry her at all. And Wright was a Protestant. 
just about every judge and justice on the bench in Victoria at this time was a Protestant and would have seen Wright as a morally better person than Kelly or any other Catholic or Catholic-adjacent person for that matter. This wouldn't have been treatment specially reserved for Ned Kelly or his family. Remember those awful eugenics ideas I mentioned earlier? While Catholics were included in those who were believed to be criminally inclined, Protestants were considered to be morally upright. While Wright's Irishness would have counted against him in this instance, the fact that he was considered to be a better sort of Irishman because of his religion probably influenced the judge's decision. Ironically, despite this, Wright would become a major supporter of Kelly during his bush-ranging years. Interestingly, after Kelly beat the hell out of him during a boxing match, and he eventually married into the Kelly Lloyd Quinn family. However, getting lighter sentences, or no sentence at all, for crimes he committed, while others were handed rather long stretches of prison time simply for being in the same vicinity, was a bit of a theme throughout his life. He did eventually settle down, but he had a flashpan temper all his life and still had the occasional brush with the law as he aged. As for Alex Gunn, that story is a little bit sadder and I do feel that it's worth telling. While he was in prison, his wife, Ned's sister Annie, began an affair with a police officer named Ernest Flood. Pro-Kelly interpretations have suggested that Anne was seduced and used by Flood, but more recent historical scholarship has suggested that the two had fallen deeply in love. Of course, there are serious moral issues. Annie is cheating on her husband while he's in prison, and Flood too was married, and the pair's relationship came to an abrupt end when Flood was suddenly transferred, against his will in fact, from the Greta district. There is some evidence that he was moved because of his relationship with Annie and because his superiors wanted to avoid a scandal. Annie would later give birth to a baby girl and when her sister went to register the birth on her behalf, she listed the father as Alexander Gunn. This was despite the fact that Gunn had been in prison for more than a year and Annie had not seen him since he'd been arrested. The baby could only have been Floods. Annie actually didn't survive long after the birth. She died from tuberculosis while being cared for by her mother. And despite all of Ellen's best efforts to take care of her grandchild, Annie's daughter didn't survive long after either. And they're both buried in the local Greta Cemetery. How and when Alex Gunn found out about his wife's death is not known. Nor is it clear if he ever knew she'd had an affair, although it is likely he was informed, especially since his name was on the baby's birth certificate. On his release from prison in 1881, he didn't go back to Greta and he never saw the Kelly family again. And really, I can't blame him for that. He never saw Wild Wright again either, but given what happened between them, I don't think either of them would have missed each other. I'm going to take another break here and when I come back I'm going to be looking at the incident that finally set the powder keg of Greta ablaze and put Ned Kelly on his final destructive path, the Fitzpatrick incident. Sit tight. 
I won't be gone long. Ned was released from prison six months early for good behaviour and initially it looked like he was going to turn his life around. He worked for a while as a labourer at a sawmill and later for a builder and earned a decent living. However, perhaps living on the honest side of the law didn't make him enough money because it wasn't long before he was back in his family's stock theft empire and this time he was at the head of things. Along with his stepfather, an American named George King, one of his brothers and a group of friends and family, Ned was the head of a gang that stole hundreds of horses from northeast Victoria, changed the brands and then sold them across the Murray River into New South Wales. He used false names, stole people's identities and altered the brands on the stolen horses to make them appear legitimate. He and his gang would then sell them onto horse traders in New South Wales, make a profit and then do it all over again. Police were perfectly aware this was going on, but it took them time to work out who was doing it and then to finger Kelly. By the time they did figure out who was behind it, Kelly had decided to go straight again, probably with the help of all that money he'd made running what was effectively an organised crime ring and was shearing in New South Wales. A warrant was issued for his arrest, along with one for his younger brother, Dan Kelly, who had been part of the horse-stealing ring. Their other brother, Jim Kelly, who I mentioned earlier in this episode, was in prison serving a six-year sentence for horse thefts unrelated to this activity. He'd actually been arrested while Ned had been serving his earlier three-year sentence. Now, for Jim, that sentence actually turned out to be life-saving, as we'll shortly see. Dan was still in the district and the local police officer Alexander Fitzpatrick, who was friendly with the family and had briefly dated Ned's younger sister Kate Kelly, decided he had to go and arrest him. There's really nothing wrong with this line of thinking. He was a police officer, there was a warrant out for Dan's arrest and he knew where Dan was. On the way he stopped at the local hotel for brandy and lemonade something that would prove fateful to the events that followed. He arrived at the Kelly house late in the evening and knocked on the door. And what happened next depends on who you ask. According to Fitzpatrick, events unfolded like this. He arrived at the house and found that Dan wasn't home. He stayed talking to Mrs Kelly, who wasn't happy to see him, and was even less happy about the prospect of her three big sons, as she called Ned, Jim and Dan, being in jail at the same time. Fitzpatrick then left to go and check if a man he could see splitting logs was licensed to do so, which, really. Upon finding out that the man was on his own selection and didn't need a license, Fitzpatrick returned to the Kelly house and saw two horsemen approaching. One was Dan Kelly and the other was his brother-in-law, Bill Skilling, the husband of his older sister, Maggie. Fitzpatrick entered the house after Dan and told him he was under arrest. Dan asked to be allowed to have his dinner before going to the lockup, and Fitzpatrick agreed. As Dan was finishing his dinner, Ned came bursting into the house shouting at Fitzpatrick and fired at him with a revolver. Fitzpatrick was hit on the wrist and Mrs Kelly, who was boiling with rage at the thought of her children being arrested, 
picked up a shovel and struck him with it. He was lucky not to have been killed. His bobby helmet may very well have saved his life. In the confusion, Dan stole Fitzpatrick's gun, and it was apparently only then that Ned realised it was Fitzpatrick in the house. After apologising and insisting that he wouldn't have shot him at all if he'd known who he was, Ned and his family patched Fitzpatrick up, extracted the bullet, and told him exactly what he was to tell the police when they asked what had happened and why he was injured. Ned promised to pay him off if he kept to his story, and Mrs Kelly threatened to kill him if he so much breathed a word of what had really happened. Ned and Dan accompanied him for about a mile before turning back, and Fitzpatrick made it to the local hotel once more where he sought help from the publican. His wound was rebandaged, and the publican rode with him to Benella, the largest police station in the district, to report what had happened. But the Kelly family told a rather different story. They said that Fitzpatrick was drunk when he arrived at the house and, when told Dan wasn't home, forced his way onto the property and became aggressive and was rude to Mrs Kelly. When Dan did arrive home, Fitzpatrick announced he was going to arrest him and that he had a warrant, but refused to produce it when asked and instead pulled out his gun and threatened the family. Kate Kelly, Dan's younger sister, tried to walk by him and instead he pulled her into his lap, attempted to kiss her and touched her inappropriately. This caused Dan to jump on him and Mrs Kelly to reach for the shovel, the nearest weapon with which she could defend her daughter. Dan knocked Fitzpatrick to the ground and, in the struggle, stole his gun to prevent the police officer doing any harm to the family. In the struggle, the Kellys said, Fitzpatrick struck his wrist against the protruding door lock and that was how he got his injuries. Ned, they claimed, wasn't even there. So, who was telling the truth? Well, sceptics, this episode is actually getting on and really... The Kelly story is so complex. The myths around it are so ongoing, ever-evolving, and so interesting that really I think it was a bit ambitious of me to think I could ever do this in one episode. So welcome to the very first two-part episode of The Skeptical Historian. Tune in next fortnight to hear the rest of Ned Kelly's story, examine even more myths, And try and understand whether this man was just a cop killer, a violent robber, or was there some good in him? We'll find out in a fortnight. Stay safe, stay sceptical, and we'll talk then.